You're listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join your hosts, Michael and Jenna, as they discuss all things ORAU through interviews with our experts who provide innovative scientific and technical solutions for our customers. They'll talk about ORAU's storied history, how we're impacting an ever-changing world, and our commitment to our community. Welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Good morning and welcome to another episode of Further Together, the ORU podcast. I am Michael Holtz with my co-host. Jenna Harpenau. Good morning. How are you, Jenna? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Um, So we have an interesting episode today. Yeah, I'm super excited. (laughs) Because it's the first time... I always feel like we keep saying it's the first time we've ever done this, but it's kind of the first time we've ever done this. And I'm not sure we'll ever do one like this again. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Um, We had the opportunity, I had the opportunity to interview um, Josh Hayes, who's a doctoral student at Colorado State University, Mm -hmm. Um, while he was here for five weeks in the summer. Mm -hmm. He's part of the um, visiting faculty research program, which Eric Abelquist talked about several episodes ago. Mm-hmm. But he, um, Josh, is doing some really interesting research, and it's a little difficult to explain, but you remember Fukushima, the whole Fukushima yeah. nuclear disaster back Absolutely. in 2011? Where you had a big part in the after effects of management of that. That's so, right. Yeah. So apparently, in the absence of people in the zone around the disaster area, mm-hmm. Wild boars have oh. become very populous. Oh. So it pre- presents a great research opportunity to examine wild boars for radiation dose and radiation exposure. Okay. So that's the project that Josh is working on okay. is measuring sort of they've been, you know, they've been in this exclusion zone mm-hmm. in or around it at various distances for seven years. What does the radiation dose look like? Um, and Josh actually got to go. And exactly. And What's really interesting is, yeah, he was there t- not once but twice cool. to trap wild boars and then you know they were they were um, put down and then drew their blood and I think took their teeth and yeah. some different things so that they could examine um, how they've been exposed to radiation That's in, the, super in cool. the few years since they've been there. Which so. eventually they'll be able to use that research on humans. And, exactly, yeah. and and the hope is, and Josh talks about this in the interview, is kind of speed up the process of you know if there's a radiation accident that impacts Mm -hmm. lots of humans um, to be able to speed up the process of like how much radiation were you exposed to. Cool. So here is that interview. Let's talk a little bit about background before we get Mm -hmm. jump into the research. So you're a doctoral candidate now. I know you've been to Fukushima Mm -hmm. um, to trap sedate and (laughs) (laughs) harvest from um, wild boars. How did how did you get to hear, I guess. Oh. I know that's a long story, but well, I've. How far back would you like me to start? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I know you were. So you were in the military. Yes, sir. Um, what branch? Uh, Marine Corps. Marine Corps. Excellent. Um, that's probably as logical place as any to start. It's kind of sure. where the. So I, I enlisted in two thousand and nine, my okay. senior year of high school. 
and left at 17. I went in as a uh, CBRN defense specialist, which is chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear defense specialist. Uh, and that's kind of where I got my first taste is a rad tech uh, in whatever limited fashion it was in the beginning. Uh, and I was actually stationed in Okinawa, Japan when the Great East Japan earthquake happened. Uh, and while I was there, I was low man on the totem pole, so everyone else took off for the response, and I'm kind of back, just kind of crunching dose conversions and things like that. <laughs> so that was a interesting way to see that. I bet it was. Uh, but uh, after I uh, got done with Japan, I went. And, uh, my last duty station was in uh, Miramar, California, okay. and there I was a hazardous materials instructor uh, to include some radioactive components of aircraft, and kind of really kind of got a taste for. Uh, learning and teaching and started to, my, my ambitions with it kind of started to outweigh my, my leadership and uh, Marine Corps leadership does not like it when people ask questions. <laughs> so, or questions the way things are done. So I kind of made a decision to get out and go to school. So I came to CSU and did an undergraduate in uh, biomedical science, uh, mostly with the human physiology. I okay. uh, got a job near the end of my undergraduate teaching human physiology and I still do that to this day. Uh, but I kind of got done with my undergraduate and I was kind of the whole thing was just kind of a half a plan in a general direction Right, and that general direction was some sort of health science and by the under, under undergrad I'd pretty much raised more questions than I had answered for myself So it was like okay, maybe I should try doing a master's and then I'll kind of figure out what I want to do from there And I was just flipping through the course catalog and I saw health physics and thought to myself, I have no idea what this is. <laughs> so, but it has a very diverse program. It's got radiochemistry, uh, radiophysics, radiobiology, radioecology. It's like, this is a great, great way to get in and kind of get the full gambit of the radiation health sciences, kind of see what I want to go and go to from there. So I applied blindly. Okay. And uh, I heard back from my advisor uh, <laughs> a week before the semester started that oh I got accepted. Uh, so I walked into his office and said, hey, I'm Josh. Uh, and we got to talking, and it was about 45 minutes into our first conversation, he decided I was going to Fukushima. Wow. Uh, so my immediate response was, let me ask my wife. <laughs> right. So, Gotta check. Yeah, so household six gave the go-ahead on it. And uh, <laughs> by one semester later, this was in January when I had the conversation with him, and come May, I was on a plane to Japan for the first time. Wow. And spent about two and a half months over there. Uh, working with some prefectural hunters in the Fukushima University Institute of Environmental Radioactivity, hunting these wild pigs. And my initial project, I was looking at doing chromosomal aberrations okay. on these animals. And they had recently moved into a brand new building and the lab hadn't been set up yet when I got there. So there was no chemicals for doing the procedures. And it was probably about a month in when the first things came. and probably about halfway through when I finally had everything I needed to do these. Oh I was like, all right, I kind of need to get a different direction with that. And that's when my advisor sent me a presentation by a gentleman who works here, Ron Goins, uh, who had done work with, the, uh, with a, what's called a pseudopelgarcuid anomaly, right. kind of a novel biomarker for radiation dose. Uh, so I read the paper, thought it was interesting. And I, the paper that I'd read was on an acute exposure at the Y12 plant. And so I emailed Ron, he was a corresponding author, and I said, hey, what do, you, what do you think about an acute, or instead of acute exposure, we think about chronic exposure, because I've got these pigs. <laughs> and he came back and he sent me some papers on some bat studies that had been with it. So him and I kind of got to conversing about it uh, over the next year or so. Uh, and we collected blood samples at Fukushima, collected blood samples at Savannah River Ecology Lab down in Aiken, Georgia, or Aiken, South Carolina, excuse me. 
And lo and behold, we wound up coming down here to work with Ron to evaluate those first samples. And we came out with a dose response for those, those 37 initial animals. Came out with a dose response to that, and that was enough ammo for them to let me into the PhD program uh, to continue the project. Uh, so I started the PhD program after I finished my master's. I went back to Japan in the end of last year, and there the stars aligned, and we wound up catching 101 new animals oh in about six to eight weeks. Okay. And so they, they apparently didn't like the heat of the summer, so they were avoiding the traps then because we caught. Uh, in Fukushima itself, we caught 19 animals in 10 weeks in the summer, but then 101 in six to eight. <laughs> quite the difference. Uh, and that's what we've got here. So I've got blood smears total from 138 wild boars now. Wow. And so that's what I'm back down here doing now is reevaluating these to make that dose response curve more robust. Okay. Um, when was your first trip to Japan? Uh, summer of 2017. 2017, okay. And so summer the first time and it was what time of the year, the second time? Uh, May through August, May through August, and then October through December. So, colder weather. Mm. <laughs> yeah. More looking for food, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, um, talk about the pseudo-Pelger-Hewitt anomaly and kind of what you're looking for and what it tells us about. Okay. Uh, so, I'll, I'll kind of start explaining what a neutrophil is. Uh, I was just telling you a little bit earlier, the the whole blood components, uh, there's red blood cells, there's plasma, and there's white blood cells. Uh, the white blood cells is your essentially your immune system, mm -hmm. and that makes up a little bit less than 1% of your total blood volume. Of that 1%, the most abundant cell type is what's called a neutrophil. Uh, it, the neutrophil is, is part of the innate immune response. Uh, very fast turnover in the peripheral blood, uh, and like any other blood cell, they come from the bone marrow, which is some of the most radiosensitive tissue in your body, if, actually the most radiosensitive tissue in your body. Uh, so it'd be, if we see effects of radiation, we'd expect to see them in any of the bone marrow or the blood that comes from there. Um, <clears throat> so the, uh, we started looking at the Pseudopelger-Hewitt anomaly, which is originally comes from what's called a Pelger-Hewitt anomaly. Uh, there was two gentlemen way back in the beginning of the 20th century uh, that were looking at this anomalous neutrophil. They normally have between three and seven lobes of their nucleus. Uh, neutrophils tend to operate in the interstitial space outside the uh, vascular compartment. Okay. So they have to squeeze between those endothelial cells, and having that segmented nucleus makes it a lot easier. There's a process called diapedesis. Uh, so when they are hyposegmented and have only two lobes, uh, that's what the, the Pelger-Hewitt anomaly is. Uh, endogenously, because they do exist endogenously in all of us, uh, it comes from a mutation on chromosome one uh, that causes a defect in what's called the Lamin B receptor, and it winds up with that, it almost looks like a dumbbell shape. Uh, and I've heard people refer to it as the aviator cell. Gosh. It's like aviator glasses. Aviator glasses okay. uh, but it was linked to that mutation. But then we started seeing it induced in different things like, uh, like enterovirals uh, so, uh, and radiation. Uh, so Ron started looking at it with uh, the Y12 mm -hmm. uh, at criticality accident and then radium watch dial painters. So both acute and chronic exposures. And this is what's referred to as a pseudo Pelger-Hewitt anomaly. So it's not a naturally occurring one, but you can see a positive uh, increase in the prevalence of those. Uh, now there is a varying difference of background between humans and different species. Sure. This has been seen in humans, uh, bats. Uh, it's been seen in veterinary literature for dogs and horses, uh, as well as uh, irradiated primates. Um, but what basically what I'm doing is I'm going through these blood smears and I'm counting the neutrophils and looking for a percentage of them to present this morphology. Okay. And the theory is, is that with an increased radiation dose, you get an increased prevalence of this uh, pseudopelger-Hewitt anomaly. 
And I know that you're sort of doing the verification of that. Mm -hmm. Have you found that to be the case? Uh, so we have we, we have done uh, computationally uh, calculated out some lifetime dose estimates okay. for these animals uh, in an effort to remove bias from the study since they still have about five animals left of the 138 I have not accessed any of that data yet gotcha. Uh, gotcha. and that, that's in an effort to remove bias from sure, the study certainly. if they know they had a huge dose I'm more likely to assume that something is what it isn't uh, so uh, we haven't actually compared any of the data yet. That should be coming here pretty soon. I should round out the analysis uh, either this afternoon or tomorrow, and then come next week we'll start piling it together and see if we get a good response. Gotcha. So the, um, the theory is if the individual who looked at the dose response first yeah. or looked at the neutrophils first finds that there's a dose response rate, yours would verify what they found, theoretically, or well, more or just less. To Again, I'm like freshman, <laughs> freshman radio chemistry. So where, where this really has some large implications in is uh, biodosimetric estimates of radiation dose that someone gets. The gold standard right now is dicentric chromosome analysis, right. uh, which takes between 48 and 72 hours minimum, uh, is expensive. Uh, it's, from what I understand, when it gets done, it's a couple grand that people have to pay to get this analysis wow. done. And in a... Uh, triage situation you've got a ton of people coming through there's a large throughput it's not it's not as re not realistic financially or um, I mean you don't really have a choice at sometimes but uh, it's it's a large undertaking both financially and manpower wise to try to get this whole thing done uh, if we have some sort of assay that is much cheaper and can be much more of an immediate readout uh, it could kind of help alleviate that burden Okay. Uh, not just from like triage situations, but like a like an occupational health situation. I mean, picture a, an X-ray technician that accidentally sets their dose their dosimeter on top of an X-ray unit, turns it on, they read out with a huge dose at the end of the month. The company has to send their blood in to say, okay, did this person actually receive this dose? Right. So it turns out they didn't. All right, they just blew five grand and a simple mistake. Right. Uh, but with this analysis, this is just from a peripheral blood smear. So you take a little piece of glass, drop the blood from the finger, smear it out, you dry it, fix it, stain it, and count it under a microscope for, takes good clean slide, will take about 15 to 30 minutes. Okay. So yeah. we're essentially speeding up the process mm -hmm. of determining dose rate. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and the other implication too with it is uh, even if, whenever there's a Nash casualty incident, um, like for instance, the uh, exposure incident that happened in Guayana, Brazil, where they had a cesium chloride source that was orphaned. And they only had, I think, I think it was about, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was about 20, 25 clinically significant cases. Uh, but they had hundreds, thousands of people show up thinking they were contaminated. Sure. Uh, and if you're going through, that's a lot of people to deal with, right? Uh, but if you tell somebody, okay, you're not exposed, Right. What's the likelihood of them being like, okay, I trust you, right. Right? right? And just walk away. What this could be is kind of a peace of mind thing for them too. It's just like, okay, give me a drop of blood. I'll come back in two hours. Right. So, all right. Yeah. See, here's proof. You're not exposed. But there's peace of mind. Yeah. Peace of mind for being people able to who say, think, no, really, yeah. you weren't exposed. Because mm -hmm. a radiological incident, there's a, what a lot of people don't realize is a huge psychological component of it, and having that peace of mind could really ease the the issue. You talk about that like you've seen it. <laughs> Personally, the psychological, the psychological portion, the psychological side of that. I, not. I, I wouldn't. I, having worked in Fukushima, uh, I, for, I was there for a total of five months okay. uh, between two different trips, and there is a little bit of component even to this day where people, the public perception of nuclear power, uh, the 
issues that it raises. People get very passionate when they're arguing about it. Uh, and you, you can see it in other types of incidents as well. Um, uh, you know, natural disasters of any kind. Sure. Uh, and then when I was active duty in Okinawa, which if, for anybody unfamiliar with the geography, Okinawa is a significant distance from Fukushima. Uh, I mean, it's far enough away that it wasn't even affected by the earthquake that kind right. of caused okay. the, a disaster. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and even down there, people were freaking out about it. Uh, it's just this inherent fear of something they don't really understand. Uh, I mean, I think there, at one point there was a barge that had broken off during the tsunami, and it washed ashore in I think California, and everyone was freaking out, thinking it was radioactive. Right. And it, I don't think you think it was even from Fukushima Prefecture. So, <laughs> so, so it's. Um, I think most of that stems in that it's just, inherent fear of the unknown. Sure, because um, it's something you can't can't feel, you can't hear it, you can't taste it, but they say it's there. Right. Well, and having spent five months in Fukushima yourself, mm -hmm. was that something you personally worried about? Was it? No, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I realize you're the scientist; you understand <laughs> this. So. Yeah. Well, it's, it's it's one of those things. That I was a little stressed out about it the first time I went over there, not because of the radiation, it's because I was about to go to Japan away from for my the wife for two, two and a half months. So I was like, okay, this is, you know, kind of thrown to the wolves here, almost quite literally. And uh, uh, luckily it was there, not Chernobyl the first time. So no wolves in Fukushima. But, uh, yeah, I went over there. I wasn't, you know, too worried about the radiation. I had my questions. And the, the folks I work with are really quick to answer and who are more experienced. But to kind of put it in perspective, um, the NCRP sites... Uh, your the average background dose to an American at 6.2 uh, millisieverts per year. And that's for things like cosmic radiation, uh, nuclear medicine, uh, natural background terrestrial radiation, radon. In the five months I was in Fukushima working in the exclusion zone nearly every day, my cumulative dose was about one millisievert. Okay. So, and that was two trips in 2017, 2018, so two years. Uh, so one millisievert, the... ICRP states that your risk of fatal cancer within your lifetime goes up 5% per sievert. So if I do that at the same pace <laughs> for 2,000 years, I'll raise my risk of cancer by 5%. Right. But that really illustrated the point to me that it's really important to be able to explain that mm -hmm, to some absolutely. folks. Because, uh, you know, some of my friends are, you know, a little more blue collar side of the, they're not familiar with this type of stuff. And I was able to portray it to them. It was exactly that way. Well, so, only because I find this completely fascinating. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about um, trapping <laughs> the boars <laughs> and how that process worked. So experiences vary. Uh, it, the expectation with animal research, and don't tell any first year graduate student this, but the, uh, they didn't tell me until I got back. But the expectation with animal studies is to come back with nothing. It's inherently unpredictable. Uh, animals love ruining your plans. Sure. Uh, I mean, they don't want to get captured. Um, these animals are living on in our data set. Uh, but wild boars were a really great species of opportunity for multiple reasons. One, they breed uh, ridiculous paces. Uh, you know, three to seven piglets up to three times in 14 months. So their population boomed after the, expo after the uh, accident. Uh, two, they dig around in the dirt for food. So they're right there in the dirt where all that cesium contamination mm -hmm. is, so they're intaking it. Three, their physiology is really close to humans. And four, they're remarkably destructive animals. <laughs> so they're actively being hunted already. So we, what we did is we piggybacked on some prefectural hunters in 2017, yeah, piggyback, pun intended, uh, <laughs> we worked with them in a town called Namie, which is north uh, west of the reactor site, kind of right up the plume. 
and it came off. And what they did is they had single bore traps, and these are about two meters by two meters tall by two meters wide by about two to three meters long. Uh, gate goes up on either side. They would bait it with a variety of things. It was usually some sort of like soy powder product. They'd actually cook sake down into a paste and put it in there. So they're trying to get the board docile for us. Right. Uh, but they were angry drunks. Uh, but board comes in, hits the uh, trip cord, gates fall. The rest is history. Uh, 2017, we had to, we were looking at cataractogenesis in the eyes. Uh, and that's a paper that's hopefully coming out pretty soon. Okay. Um, but problem with cataracts is they start to form almost immediately post-mortem. So we actually had to anesthetize them and do a live evaluation of that. So that was an experience in itself. We worked with a veterinarian, uh, veterinary ophthalmologist, and she would use a pole dart to anesthetize them, wait till they fall asleep. And I was about 100 pounds larger than both the folks I was working with. So I would move the pig out, and then we would work it up. And then um, following the ophthalmology exam, we, the, the boars would be euthanized. Uh, and we do a lot of sample collection on those. Uh, for the rest of the project, we did, we did look at uh, cataracts again at the Savannah River site as controls. They had a bit of a different technique. Instead of single bore traps, boars are familial animals. Mm -hmm. uh, so they travel in large groups. So they would take advantage of that and they would create these, these make these big traps. And they, yeah, there's some very sophisticated ones that the Forest Service had. And then there's some that are just kind of MacGyvered from stuff at Home Depot. But same basic concept, fence around, some sort of gate mechanism. Uh, some of them, they had pulleys set up so the whole ring would come up. Uh, and they're usually about six foot tall and some sort of wires around it so that it you know, could contain the animals in there. And they would just bait it with corn daily for weeks until the whole family got used to coming in there. And then they would drop the cage on them. Gotcha. And so I think the most we caught while we were down there, well, we had 16 pigs in a single trap. And uh, uh, when we saw that, I was like, wow, that's really cool. He goes, oh, that's nothing, the Forest Service guy. And he shows me a picture. They had caught 43 pigs in a single trap a couple of weeks beforehand. Oh, my gosh. I mean, there was, there was less room. There, there was more pigs in the trap, and there was space left for <laughs> them to move around. Um, but that was, that was a really that was an interesting technique. Um, so then that, that concluded the ophthalmolo ophthalmology portion of it, so we didn't have to anesthetize them anymore. When we went back to Japan again at the end of last year, there was no cataract project or anything like that. So we had no need to work the animals up while they were alive. So the prefectural hunters would euthanize them. And then we would work with them up afterwards. But we worked with some different ones out of Akuma, which is the town where the reactors actually are. And then they worked all up and down the coast at different towns. Uh, so a whole variety of dose rates in and around that exclusion zone. Uh, and they had close to 300 of those single bore traps. And they're all radio tagged. Uh, so if a door drops, uh, they get like a text message saying, hey, this door dropped. And some of them had trail cams that would text them a picture of it. Wow. So you can confirm if there's a pig in there or not. Right. Uh, but you know, there's, it's a little problematic sometimes because you have 300 traps. What happens if there's an earthquake? Right. <laughs> All those doors shut, and then it's a really yeah. long day resetting traps. Right. But that that, that um, method, though, definitely proved out because that's when we caught those 101 pigs. Okay. It was just accuracy by volume. Right. <laughs> so. And you got them in varying distances from kind of the ground zero, so mm -hmm. you can get an idea of the, you know, dose right based on distance and all of that. Yes, and, yeah, and these animals are caught uh, not just in the exclusion zone, they're okay. all around. So areas that are technically considered control animals, but how we indicated the nomenclature, this is again to remove bias from the study, in addition to me not knowing the lifetime estimates of these, 
all of these animals are listed as Akuma because that's where the hunters were based out yeah, of. Sure. But I have no way of knowing if it actually was Akuma or if it was Tomioka or Naraha, uh, which is all up and down the coast. The plume went up to the northwest, and Tomioka and Naraha are both south of the reactors. So those are essentially going to be control bores once right. we find out where they actually came from. <laughs> right. So, But I have no coordinates or nothing. So no. it's like triple blind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then, yeah, it, it, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this. Yeah. Um, any expectations for what comes out of this? Uh, hopefully we get a dose response. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know that's the victory, so, right? The, that is the victory. <laughs> yeah, we, we'll do a victory lap around, uh, around the building if that happens. Uh, one, once we complete this analysis and we build the response curve from it, uh, we need to... The validation itself comes from a comparison with that gold standard dicentrics we were talking about. Uh, we have 138 animals around. I haven't confirmed completely because there's some within my data set where the blood samples were inviolable for analysis, so it may have dropped that number a little bit. But somewhere hovering around 90 of these animals have dicentric work being done on them. Okay. Right. Uh, so once that dicentric work is being done, we'll be able to compare these two methods and see if there's some, some sort of correlation between the two. And then that right there would be some sort of the validation to say, hey, this is actually legitimate. And as far as I know, that is the first time it's ever been validated with dicentric chromosomes. Okay. Uh, it's really it's really difficult to do in vivo because it has to be bone marrow, or at least in my theory, it has to be bone marrow radiation versus peripheral blood. So you can't just draw blood out, irradiate it, and look at it. It actually has to be bone marrow dose, and then it comes out. Um, so the, that's another part of the study we want to look at is irradiating domestic pig blood gotcha. and seeing and you know you're trying to get a negative out of that to disprove that it's the peripheral blood okay. we're still kind of making that assumption right now okay yeah. so even after you get the victory should you <laughs> should you find success mm-hmm. uh, there's more work to be done oh of course there's always more work to be done any good research <laughs> project you wind up with more questions than the answer excellent no. <laughs> that's why we're always chasing funding right, <laughs> <laughs> right. um is the dicentric work being done here? Is it being done? Uh, it is being done by our collaborator in Fukushima. In Fukushima, oh, okay. So he, he's actually uh, a gentleman uh, named Donovan. He, he's our alumni of our program, okay. and he's working on his doctorate over there as well. As part of his doctoral work, is doing the dicentric okay. analysis of those bores. Awesome. So we're both kind of working together on it. I gotcha. So this is kind of exciting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I'm not a scientist, <laughs> but just you know the. The idea of speeding up the process should, mm-hmm. you know, should the process need to be used, mm-hmm. God forbid, but um, speeding up the process of determining dose response would mm-hmm. be huge, fantastic, mm-hmm. so, and making it cheaper, so, um, I think that's it for my question. Thank okay. you so much. No problem. Thank you for listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. To learn more about any of the topics discussed by our experts, visit www.orau.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at ORAU, and on Instagram at ORAU Together.